to come together and sit under the instruction of your word. Uh, Father, we ask for your help in these coming moments. Help us, Lord, to grasp the depth and the scope and the magnitude of the text that's before us today in spite of our limited understanding. Lord, speak to our hearts and our minds. Apply this truth to us this day. Amen. This morning, as we press on through the study of the book of Hebrews, I think it's fair to say that the author's primary emphasis through the first three chapters, and really we could say throughout the entire book, is is really to demonstrate the ultimate supremacy of Jesus Christ, his majesty. In uh, chapters 1 and 2, Christ is proven to be far superior to angels, and this was largely due to Um, In the mindset of the Jewish people, this almost idolatry and worship of angels. And so Christ is is shown to be far superior to the angels. Very clearly, um, and and then uh, in chapter 3, rather, uh, Christ is, is shown to be superior to Moses. He is greater than Moses. In fact, Jesus was the one that Moses spoke of. He is our, as, as our brother put it last week, the better Moses that we are, were to look forward to, that they were to look forward to. And so very early on in chapter 1, we see very clearly, I think, uh, this threefold office of Christ as prophet and priest and king. Jesus Himself is the ultimate fulfillment of those three God-ordained ministerial offices. Jesus, the fulfillment of these things. And really, in a more broad sense, that's what the whole Bible is showing us. That in all things, Jesus is being exalted. And he is the fulfillment of all things. All things are being summed up in the person and work of Christ. He is preeminent. All the types and shadows and things that we see in the pages of the Old Testament were ultimately pointing to uh, a greater fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment, and that fulfillment is, is Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all that was written. Hebrews even begins by stating that God had in times past spoken to the people through prophets, but now has spoken ultimately and finally through his son. There was a a promise of a great and final prophet, a great prophet. Jesus Christ is that great prophet. The old covenant priesthood that God put in place through the Levites um, to serve as as a temporal intercessor uh, between God and his people were likewise pointing the people further to Christ, further to Christ. There would one day be a great high priest that would make sacrifice once and for all for the people of God and would draw his people close in such a way that the Levitical priesthood never could do and was entirely insufficient and incapable of doing. Jesus is that great high priest. The people of Israel likewise longed at times for a day when they would be ruled and governed and protected by a king. The government that they had at various times was was insufficient by world standards and in their minds. But as king after king failed to live up to the true righteous standard and failed to execute justice and righteousness perfectly, There was a promise of a true king that would execute justice and righteousness perfectly in all things because he himself is perfectly just and righteous. Jesus Christ is that promised king. He is that promised king. 
And so as you read through the pages of Scripture, practically every major theme in the Bible, every major storyline that you, that you read is in some way painting a picture. It's in, in some way serving as an illustration of, of, a, of something yet much greater to come, something much better, uh, an ultimate fulfillment. All of the Bible is pointing you to the person and work of Christ. It is. That's what the whole thing is about. It's about Jesus Christ. Brother Jeff has been elaborating on one such of these recurring themes over the past couple of weeks through Hebrews 3 and in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 4. And that is this picture of God's people struggling, striving, toiling, if you will, and God providing rest for those people in their struggle and in their toil and their striving. Rest in a more broad and general way in the form of a Sabbath day rest. And then later on, rest in the form of a land of giant figs, fig trees. And yet all the while, this is still leading and pointing us further to an ultimate fulfillment, an ultimate rest in Jesus Christ himself, a day, a land, a person, completed rest. So we see God's rest for his people being progressively revealed, progressively instituted throughout the pages of history, uh, throughout the pages of scripture, throughout redemptive uh, history. In fact, um, most of the hymns that we sing in our, in our hymn book follow this type of pattern. There is a chorus that reveals some general truth about, of God, of Christ, and then verses that specifically elaborate upon this general truth. And oftentimes the verses sort of pick up steam. They become more and more profound as they are revealed. And so we might consider God's rest in this way. God's rest being this angelic chorus that's being sung throughout redemptive history. And the details of that rest being revealed further and further, verse by verse. Last week, uh, our pastor very appropriately and strongly exhorted us to be careful not to neglect one such form of God's rest that he has provided for us. That the Lord's Day worship and our assembling together, what we do now is one such form of, of rest. And I agree wholeheartedly with our pastor when he said that one of the reasons why so many of God's people struggle to find peace and rest in their lives in a practical way is because they fail, we fail, to see the importance of coming together as God's people for prayer, for fellowship, to sit under the ministry of the word because the rest that we receive is profound. God gives us rest through assembling together and worship. God does not command us to worship him in the way that he does and with the frequency that he does and with the regularity that he does arbitrarily. It's not just some random thing. There's a purpose. It's for our benefit, if you will, that we come together the way that we do. 
that we're commanded to come together in this way. We are created in God's image. That is, we're made in the image of God. And so in a very real way, we were made, we were created to worship. We're created to glorify God in our lives and in what we do. That's our purpose. In fact, the Westminster Larger Catechism begins by asking the question, what is the chief and highest end of man? That that is to say, what is man's primary purpose? What is man's ultimate calling? And according to our Presbyterian brothers, they say man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen? Of course, we agree with that. We agree with that. And so when we as God's people neglect or fail to do that which we were created to do, in the way that he demands that we do it, with the regularity that he says we are to do it, we will, without a doubt, fail. It will hinder us greatly from resting in Christ the way that God desires us to rest, the way that he has designed it to be. And so, Now, on this Lord's Day, as we come together and we seek to further discuss and really to conclude maybe this discussion, this immediate discussion about God giving his people rest, we've reached what I'm going to say is a boiling point. We've reached the boiling point here. This is where the the rubber really meets the road, another way to put it. And so it's, it's time that we, we consider God's rest for his people in the most ultimate way. And in fact, I, th- I think, in my opinion, is the, the primary thrust of what is being driven at in this section. And so we'll remember, um, as this discussion began about God giving rest, uh, Jesus, the context is Jesus was, was being uh, illustrated and proven to be, through the text, superior to Moses. And in fact, it says in Hebrews 3, I'll just look back very quickly, very quickly. In Hebrews 3, from verses 5 to 15, this is what it says. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So it sort of takes a maybe an unexpected turn. Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, and then it turns and it, it points back, and it makes it very real and immediate to us. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our hope. And it is then that the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, the rest for the people of God. And he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And so the author of Hebrews, he quotes this, he draws us back, and he points us back to history. And he, he, he does what, what preachers do. They throw out a text, and then they give you an exegesis, and that's exactly what it did. he did. He quotes the text, and then he explains it. And he says in 
uh, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he draws our attention back to a rebellion in the past, and he warns us, don't repeat the same folly. Don't make the same mistake. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as the day is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we, and he says it again, for we have come to share in Christ. If, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so it's clear in my mind, and I think from what is written, that there is a, a very grave warning. And there is this very profound and vivid illustration given that serves as the basis for us not to follow in those footsteps. And so it's with our mind thinking in that way that I would like us to, to read our text today. So please, if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, please, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. <clears throat> Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I think perhaps the thing that struck me the most as I uh, prepared to preach this text is the immediacy of the implications. The immediacy of the implications. And that is to say um, that it's easy for us to fall into the trap. Jeff spoke about this last week. It's easy to fall into the trap of reading the scriptures as being merely biblical history, you know, uh, like it, it, we, we read these stories from Hebrew history and we think in our minds sort of subconsciously, well, that was about them and it doesn't really affect me. And, and sometimes the opposite as well. Sometimes if we think about maybe eschatological things, we think about the return of Christ in an ultimate way. We think well, that's, that's in the future. Not really practical for me to consider these things now. But the pointed truths in this passage just simply don't allow for that type of cavalier or relaxed attitude. They just don't. In verse 11, listen to the writer. Let us therefore, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We see this is almost a, it's almost a, a recapitulation of the same warning from verse 1 of chapter 4. Just look just back real quick. Verse 1, chapter 4, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That word that we see in English as fear 
is um, the same word. It's, it's where we get the word phobia in English from, to have a, a phobia of a particular type, to be horrified or terrified. So someone, for example, that may have arachnophobia, they have a fear or phobia of spiders. And people that are really afflicted by this become frozen with fear when they encounter a spider, paralyzed by fear, horrified. Anxiety consumes them and dominates their thought because of this fear. And this is the word that is at play. This, this is the word that we have before us. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. To reach what? To reach this rest that God is providing. Let us fear. And so after, after giving us sort of a, a short lesson through Hebrew history, the writer he, he, he recalls the stumblings and disobedience and unbelief of the Israelites. The writer then turns his, his attention back to the original audience and, and really back to us. He points it, he puts the ball back in our court. It's right back on us, clear and presently. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. See, what happened in the past is no longer really relevant in a practical way unless we apply it. Knowing the different details and intricacies of what happened with the Israelites and with this king or that king or whatever, it doesn't really help us unless we apply it in our context, unless we make application to our own circumstances. Paul, Paul, the apostle, speaks of Hebrew history in this way, in a similar way, in his letters to the church at Corinth. I'll read you a short example of that. 1 Corinthians 10, verses uh, 1 through 12. Listen to the apostle Paul. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, that we would not become idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the deceiver. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed lest he fall. And so the bottom line here is that those Israelites, those supposed people of God, people who walked in his light, benefited from all that he was doing and was giving them, providing for them, said the right things, outwardly, in a way, did the right things, showed up at the right time, but ultimately, in the end, proved their faithlessness. And they fell. The scriptures in Numbers, when you read Numbers, it says their dead bodies fell in the wilderness. So the primary concern for the writer to the Hebrews, or what we might say is the bottom line, or 
the overarching emphasis is that there were professing believers that were in clear and present danger of apostasy. Just as there were apostate Israelites whose dead bodies fell in the wilderness, that is to say that there were Jewish followers of Christ, people that recognized Jesus as the Messiah, in a way, were potentially failing to trust him unto salvation. They spoke with their lips, but their hearts were not there. And just as there is today, there were perversions of the, of the Christian faith then. At that time, it was predominantly Jewish zealots that acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, but instead, but insisted that all the rigors and requirements of the Judaic system still had to be kept. Yes, Jesus, but this also. This stuff plus plus Jesus. Not that Jesus fulfilled all of the Judaic system, but instead it was all of that stuff plus, plus Jesus. Almost as if, you know, nothing really changed. We now have this messianic figurehead, but nothing really changes. Instead of looking and finding rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They were still wanting to hold on to their religious rites and ordinances and tradition. They still thought that those things could make peace between them and God. They were still holding on to something that had been done away with and fulfilled. Christ. And so while it's very unlikely that any of us here today are in danger of making that mistake, of looking back, rather than looking to Christ, looking back to the Judaic system and and all the things that foreshadowed Christ, back to looking to the rigors and tenets of, of Judaism, there's still a real possibility of missing the mark. Maybe not that way. But there is still a way. There is still a danger. There is still still a danger. Because of that, the warning that the writer to the Hebrews gives is just as relevant, just as applicable, just as pointed to us as we sit here today. For in verse 11, he says, that, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Falling in the wilderness for the Israelites meant physical death. Meant physical death. The warning is for us not to fall by the same sort of disobedience, but with the consequences being greater the consequences being much more severe. Last week, if you were paying attention, you might have noticed a a very subtle difference. Uh, Pastor Jeff, in reading through the text, I believe he was reading from the English Standard Version, he made a small change, a small change. In verse 6, he says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, which is what the text says, our pastor said unbelief. He said unbelief. And that's not insignificant. It's not insignificant. If you're reading a, a newer translation, it probably does say disobedience, but an older translation like the K, uh, King James actually uses the word unbelief rather than disobedient. The underlying Greek word there, Jeff made the right choice. He made a translative decision. He parted from the modern translation. 
and rightfully so. The underlying Greek word that the writer of Hebrews used was apatheia, and it means indifference, um, not having confidence in. It's where we get the English word apathy from. Unbelief. Unbelief. So the disobedience, they were disobedient, but it was rooted in unbelief. Unbelief. The Israelites refused to go into the land that Moses had led them to because in doing so, it would have been them putting their lives in the hands of God. They just couldn't do it. They surveyed the circumstances. They weighed all of the options. And they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Couldn't bring themselves to trust God. They felt more confident in returning to Egypt than to step foot in that land that God had led them to. And they died there in the wilderness because of unbelief. How is one justified? How is one reconciled to God? Only one way. Only through belief. Only through belief. Faith in Jesus Christ. In the sixth chapter of John, we read where Jesus did this miraculous feeding of 5,000 people. And he, he feeds them with six loaves and two fish in, a, in the most miraculous way, 5,000 people, which was probably more than 5,000 people if you really counted everyone. But nevertheless, the next day, this is where this little story picks up, in John 6, this is the day after, it says Jesus had left. He had gone across the lake. He had left the crowd, and he had moved over. It says in John 6, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus cut right to the chase. Rabbi, when did you get here? He doesn't even address the question. He addresses and cuts right to their motives. You didn't follow me because you saw signs. You, you're not here because you recognize that I have the words of life. They didn't even, it wasn't even because they recognized through the miraculous thing that he did that he was even a true prophet of God. No. In a very real sense, it was a free meal. They thought, man, we followed this guy and we're going to have all the bread we want. And in that time and in their, that circumstance, that meant a lot. That meant a lot. They didn't have a 7-Eleven or Brookshire's they could just step into and get a quick meal. It was different. They were after a meal. Jesus rebukes them immediately. He says to this, Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. You ready? That you believe. That you believe in him who he has sent. That's the only way you can square the deal. It's the only way you can make yourself right before God, is trusting in every way Christ. Believing Christ unto salvation. Jesus' words there made quick work of their motives. He exposed their disingenuous reason for following him. They weren't following him because they recognized any of those things that we just talked about. It was a free meal. He exposed their ulterior motives, if we want to call it 
that way. It wasn't Christ that they were wanting. It was merely the benefit of association. By following Christ, we get something. Some thing. Today, there are many people who are doing exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Perhaps not for literal bread. But for them, following Jesus fills some sort of a superficial void in their life. It meets some need that they have in some way. But not because Christ is the one that will reconcile them and give them peace with God. Not that. Jesus went on to tell those people that were pursuing him that he himself was the true bread of life. He was the bread of life. And that whoever believes in him will never hunger and never thirst. And of course, Jesus wasn't speaking about relief from physical pains of hunger and thirst. Believing Jesus won't obscure you from ever being physically hungry or thirsty again. What Jesus was speaking about was far greater than relief from those physical pains. Jesus was offering them rest for their souls. Rest for their souls. Deliverance from the enmity between them and God. And that is the human condition. That is it. That is the great human problem that we all must fix, that we all must solve, is this enmity between ourselves and our Creator. We are all born with this innate feeling of inadequacy. And as we grow, and then we, as we learn and we mature mentally, physically, that feeling of inadequacy, which is really more of a reality of inadequacy, becomes more profound and more clear in our minds. It becomes more real as we grow. And we do what humans do. We seek to fill that void, cover that inadequacy in whatever form it presents itself in a variety of ways. Thousands upon thousands of ways we seek to cover this up. We seek to fulfill that. Some people turn to things like drugs to pacify in, a, in this time, or alcohol, or, or, or sex. Some people seek to excel athletically, you know? They, they devote themselves entirely to athletic achievement, things like that. Of course, none of those things have any real or lasting effect. The problem is that we're sinners. That's the real problem. We are sinners and we are, by nature, failing to do that which we've been created to do thus leading us to despair and inadequacy. That's the root. That's the root. Some people work tirelessly to amass great wealth because they think that buying more stuff will somehow fill the void, will provide the comfort that they can't seem to find. Some this is interesting that some of the funniest comedians, well-known, successful comedians that there are in their private lives are the most miserable, depressed people on earth. They seek to cover their inadequacies. They seek to cover their shame, this feeling of hopelessness, with the facade of a smile. It's only Christ that can fix that. You see, 
all of the working and striving and wrestling that we as humans do to fill the dark void in our souls can only be filled when we are reconciled to our Creator, if we are reconciled to God and we serve Him and enjoy Him forever in the way that we've been created to do. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way that that can happen. It's the only path forward. It's the only cure, the only solution, the only viable option, the only thing that can bring you peace in your life is Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus told them, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. And Jesus said, the only thing that you can do is believe. The only thing you can do is believe in me, trust in me. If you go on and finish that story, the scriptures say that when Jesus said that, and when he told them that, they grumbled. They grumbled. Which brings us to verse 12 in our text, back to the text. For the writer says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We could sit all day and ponder the profound nature of that. Charles Spurgeon was quoted as saying this, The word of God is the anvil upon which opinions of men are smashed. The word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. Nothing could be further from the, or nothing could be more true. It doesn't matter what you or I think. It doesn't matter what your opinion is on a thing or my opinion on a thing. It's irrelevant, entirely irrelevant. What does the Word of God say? And you hear people all the time when confronted with some kind of truth that they don't like. What do they say? Well, I just think this, or I just think that. I just think. Well, I just think that saying I just think isn't going to cut it. When we stand before God, I just thought I was good enough, or I did enough, or the good column outweighs the bad column, or whatever, however it is that we try to do things in our mind. It's not going to cut it. That will not buy your pardon. Jesus said in John 12, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word of God is what will stand. And in the final analysis, it is the word of God that will be what judges us. As Spurgeon said, again, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. It is the measuring stick by which we are judged. It is the plumb line to which all things are tested. It is the winnowing fork in Christ's hand when he cleans out his threshing floor. And no one is beyond its scope. No one is beyond its reach or God's purview. No one. As it says in verse 13 of our text, 
And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As I um, read that particular verse over and over and over again this past week, I could not help but, my mind could not help but drift to what we read in Revelation 20. And what John describes in Revelation 20, and what he is describing in the 20th chapter of Revelation is this, what he's shown in a vision, um, and we we get this abbreviated storyline of Christ's redemptive work throughout history, Um, and we see that in the future he will um, ultimately and finally destroy Satan when he returns and upon his and, and, and every other enemy that's left ultimately will be dealt with with the last enemy being defeated is, is death and then John describes this ultimate and cataclysmic ending to human history as we know it as we experience it and this is what he says Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And even as I stand here now, having read that verse and thinking about that verse, being confronted with that picture, there's a lump in my throat. It hits me square. I can't even imagine what it will be like in that moment. Can you? What it will be like to stand before God face to face in unfettered view, unveiled before God in that way. Knowing that at that time, no stone in my life will be left unturned. Every loose end will be exposed. All of my life, all of my work, all of my deeds and misdeeds, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. All of it on the table. Nothing left out, missed, or forgotten. Nothing hidden. Everything I've ever done, or said, or thought, ready for inspection. And it won't matter one bit that everyone else is standing there with me. It won't matter one bit. The only thing that will matter when those books are opened is what does the Word of God say and how do I correspond to it? That's all. That's the only thing that matters. And even still, we read that and, and somewhere in our minds, we, we just put that off. We somehow think, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got time to get that all straightened out, you know. 
But the reality is that you and I stand before God now. We stand before him now. In just a real and vivid way. He sees us that clearly and knows us that immediately now. Right now. We have that which judges us now. I always find it funny when um, sometimes when I hire someone new to work at the store, I, I, I don't let them know that I'm a preacher right away. <laughs> Not always right away. Usually a couple of weeks later, uh, you know, I might reveal that in some nonchalant kind of way. And it, it, a lot of times what happens is embarrassment. I never would have told you that joke if I knew you were a preacher. Why would you do that trick on me? That type of thing, you know. I never would have talked about that to you if I had known that. And it always so very, it's funny to me, but it, it's puzzling as well because they are embarrassed because I'm a man of God. I'm a preacher. And I've seen their lewdness or their whatever you want to call it. But they give no thought at all, no thought whatsoever that God has seen everything they've ever done. Everything they've ever said, he knows. And what they're thinking right now, he's fully and keenly aware of. And they give no thought to it at all. And you know, uh, the people of God do the same thing. It's not just worldly people. We do the same thing. You know, this, what, what if, think, think about things this way, just for a second, humor me. What, what, if, what if Jesus was in the room physically? Now, this is this, of course, is completely hypothetical. But what if you know you woke up tomorrow and 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 Jesus was there waiting on you, and he says, "All right, it's time to go to work," and you get dressed and you go to work, but nobody else can see him. It's just you, so you and Jesus. He's with you everywhere you go. How do you think that would impact you? How do you think you would would that change your behavior? how you respond to people I think it might I think it might Jesus does walk among us he is with us there's never a time when he's not he's with us he knows everything you do just because you don't see him we, we, this out of sight out of mind thing doesn't work the whole point is we stand before God right now and the things that we do are not seen. And I think it would be helpful for us as God's people. I think we would probably not say some of the things that we say to one another. We, would not, we might not treat one another the way that we do. If we just stopped and thought, you know what? I wonder what God thinks about this now. Because God does think about it. You know, I, uh, I think it's probably very likely that some of you may be thinking this really hasn't been a very uplifting message. This hasn't been real encouraging today. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you if that's what you thought. But I guess my response to that is up to this point, it wasn't meant to be. It was meant to be sobering. Because that's what this text of scripture is. It's a sobering text. It's meant to be a wake-up call, a reality check, if you will. For the, in verse 1 of Hebrews 4, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. 
that any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is a pastoral plea from the writer to the church. Fear and a plea for some self-examination. He's, he's pleading with the people of God to consider the word of God. Consider the implications. Pleading for self-examination. Not self-examination in the way of looking to yourself to determine whether or not you yourself are meeting the standard. Not that. Not to see whether or not you are, the, are meeting the, the standard of holiness and righteousness. Because you can't. Not to see whether or not they themselves were meeting the mark. Because if that's what you're looking for, you never will. You never will. But rather, he's pleading with them to see if they were looking to the finished work of Jesus Christ for their salvation. Were they looking to Christ for rest? Is that what their hope was truly in? Or were they just clinging to something else? Were they resting in Jesus Christ? Are you resting in Jesus Christ? That's the, that's the question. Have you laid down all of that baggage and all of that stuff that we were talking about earlier, or are you still carrying all that around with you? Are you still trying to make amends for all that you've done? Does your conscience still accuse you, or have you been set free from that bondage? Have you trusted Christ? And if you haven't, I've got great news. If you haven't done that, I have great news. The best news. And that is that the promise of entering his rest still stands. It still stands. The promise is still good. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you, the, give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His burden is indeed light. And so that's where I'll leave it with you today. Perhaps borrow from the Apostle Paul in a closing remark. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he gave them the gospel in one verse when he said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word, for the truth for your spirit. We thank you for the power in your word and in your spirit to convict us of our sin and for the power in that word and in your spirit to set us free from it. We ask you, Lord, for your spirit to do the work that only he can do. 
And so, Lord, if there's anyone here uh, today, in this room now, in this time, that has been living under a deception, living a Christian life under false pretenses, Lord, that you would reveal that to them and you would set them free from that, that you would lead them to a true saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ, that you'd give them rest, Lord. For any young people that have failed to reach that rest, who have failed to come to a a saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ, God, would you be merciful and kind to them and, and do that today, this day. And Father, for everyone else, help us, Lord, by your grace and through your spirit to learn to live in that rest better and more fully day by day and hour by hour, minute by minute and breath by breath. Help us to rest in you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.